Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. There is indeed much to be said <laughs> for trying on a new look. Uh, haircut, clothes, <laughs> but it's always a bit uncomfortable on the front end. So I had this experience the other day. I decided to do something different with my hair. <laughs> it may not sound like much. Uh, some people, I'm sure, don't even think about anything or things along that line, anything like that, things along that line. Uh, but for me, it's a bit of a challenge. You know, you wake up every morning, and depending on what kind of hair you have and what it naturally is inclined to do, you sometimes think to yourself, I don't know, or what you may have to do to get it to uh, cooperate, <laughs> to appear the way that you would want it to appear, to look the way you'd want to have it look so you could appear the way you want to appear. I don't know. Maybe that changes. Um, even with the mood that you're in, some people seem to be able to do that. For me, it's not so easy. So I wake up, look in the mirror, and say, this guy, something's got to happen. <laughs> I need a haircut. So I decide, well, let's just do this upright. If I'm going to do this, let me try something really different. Uh, and <laughs> with that, uh, I did. Now, it wasn't too elaborate, uh, rather than anything too kind of extreme, which just kind of captures the whole point. Uh, it was more a difference of length, short versus long. Uh, it may be a bit of a styling thing. Uh, but you go to then the person who does that for you. Uh, a lot of people, oddly enough, do that for themselves these days, uh, which may just be another degree of challenge. Uh, it all seems to come to the place of what, in your mind at least, what you think would look good, but then once you try to translate that into some sort of practical, tangible result, uh, if you're doing it yourself, uh, it can become even more arduous, difficult to accomplish, and doesn't always turn out, at least for me, it's never turned out the way quite like I thought it would. But go to somebody else and tell them exactly what it is that you want. And even then, that's a bit dicey. And for me, that's what happened on this particular occasion. Uh, so I go to this person. They cut my hair on a regular basis. I've grown to trust them. And they usually don't mess it up. And they're usually pretty good about understanding what I would want. And then even at times, they've exercised some creativity of their own and had it turn out in the end or afterward, though it wasn't exactly as I conceived of it or thought it might look best uh, as or the way that I thought it should look, uh, they were okay with what they did with it. In this particular occasion, on this particular occasion, in this particular instance, it did not turn out so well. Uh, went from long to short, and then, should I say, so short. And with that, then, not realizing exactly where my hairline really was and what I would look like with so little hair, when I looked in the mirror, uh, finally, after the haircut was coming to an end, and you know, they kind of say, well, here, take a look, see what you think. Oh, it was cringeworthy. 
<laughs> I can't get out of here and face all those others, those faces that are going to be looking at me and thinking, even if they don't, at least me, thinking they're going to be thinking like I'm thinking. It's awful. It's horrible. Where's my hat? <laughs> and on that particular day, I did not wear one. Change like that, especially as it's come to identify or you've come to use it. It's become part of how you identify yourself, your self-image. Really what I'm trying to chase down. It can be a tough pill to swallow when you do something radical like that. Uh, and, you know, what's wrong with familiarity? Uh, possibly nothing <laughs> other than uh, even in familiarity, you may still might not like it, or it may be a, a bit of a challenge to continue to appreciate, because that's what prompted me to cut my hair in the first place. I thought, well, let's try something different. Might look better. I'm tired of it the way it is. Yeah, but grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. Psychology today. And it is the June 2022 edition, Relationships Mating. Why so many couples look alike? It's more than a meme. Many romantic partners really could pass for siblings. And plenty more couples grow to look increasingly alike over time. The reasons why illuminate what people actually look for in a mate by Karen Wu, PhD, under the relationships mating section. Most of us have marveled at the degree to which some romantic partners look alike. The phenomenon has gained so much attention that siblings or dating question games have started popping up on social media platforms. Some factors bringing similar looking individuals together are well documented. For example, many people, consciously or not, tend to have a same race preference in dating. Such in-group biases are found among a range of ethnic groups and in both heterosexual and same-sex pairings. Also, couples often have a similar body type as found in studies of partners' weight, height, and body mass index. This preference for body type resemblance may predominate because, at least in terms of weight, it could be perceived as a signal of shared lifestyles. These baseline mating biases, however, don't fully explain why so many partners share a strong facial similarity. Here's what's really going on. One, implicit egotism. Many people are attracted to their own face and by extension to faces that resemble theirs. This is demonstrated when researchers blend the face of a heterosexual study participant with the face of their partner to create a self-based morph and then blend the face of the participant's partner with a same-sex prototype to create a partner-based morph. People generally rate their self-based morph as more attractive. 
While there are those outside of the participants or the participants couple favor the partner-based morph. Importantly, this preference does not operate at a conscious level. People were not able to recognize their own face in the morphed images. In a study focused on the unconscious element of this attraction, participants told that the research was actually about incest and discovering how attractive people find faces that are designed to resemble genetic relatives such as parents, brothers, and sisters. Rated self-based morphs less attractive, indicating that this phenomenon operates at an implicit level and that individuals are not knowingly attracted to people who look like themselves. Number two, familiarity effect. People may prefer those who look like them because of the familiarity effect. After repeated exposure to a particular stimulus, such as our own face, we will tend to like it more due to the ease of processing it. To the brain, easy means pleasant. Researchers testing the role of familiarity of the familiarity effect and the perceived attractiveness of faces found that more distinctive faces were rated as less attractive by people than more familiar ones. But increased exposure to the faces led to higher ratings of attractiveness for both distinctive and familiar faces. Number three, authoritative mating. How do people find happiness with any partner in a world where select other individuals are viewed as the most attractive? Researchers examining two forces of mate selection, good genes, or a preference for the very best and self-seeking like, or a preference for self-resemblance, have found evidence for both. More attractive men and women are more likely to pair up with each other, and couples generally tend to resemble each other in facial features. We may achieve an optimal and sustainable outcome for all pairing with someone who looks like us, known as assortative mating, rather than all of us competing to be with the best. Number four, sexual imprinting. People may unknowingly seek partners with faces similar to a parent's. Research suggests that young children may learn what a desirable parent should look like through a process known as sexual imprinting. That is, their parents model what their future partners should look like. To test this, researchers subliminally primed heterosexual men and women with a photo of their other sex parent. They then showed participants photographs of other sex faces and found that those who had been primed with an image of their own parent rated other sex faces more sexually attractive. Number five, emotional closeness with parents. Importantly, not everyone prefers a partner who looks like themselves or their parents. 
When researchers showed heterosexual women self-resembling male and female faces, those who reported more emotional closeness with their fathers were also more likely to prefer self-resembling male faces, although not female ones. But self-reported emotional closeness with mothers did not influence preferences. How this effect plays out in men requires more investigation, but it appears that individuals who are close to their parents may be more prone to sexual imprinting when it comes to choosing partners. Number six, similar social judgments. We may gravitate toward potential partners who resemble us, but it may not always be a matter of physical attraction. It may also be about personality, or at least the perception of it. Research has found that we make cognitive, social cognitive judgments, but not necessarily correct ones, about other people's personalities based on their looks, and that these judgments may become self-fulfilling prophecies for those judged due to the way others respond to their appearance. Therefore, people may pair with those who look like them because they perceive them to be similar in personality or because they actually are. Number seven, empathic mimicry. Sometimes couples don't start out looking like each other. They grow into it. Researchers have who have or who collected images of spouses, both as newlyweds and after 25 years of marriage, found that partners generally became more similar in looks over time, an increase that also predicted greater relationship quality. They propose that spouses, particularly those who are especially close, may converge in facial features because of empathic mimicry, That is, through empathy for one another, the the partners may feel similar emotions and make similar facial expressions, leading over time to similar facial musculature, wrinkling, and aging patterns. Pairing up with a partner who has similar physical features might be a way to be with someone who's uniquely attractive to us, as well as similar in personality, lifestyle, and emotional expressiveness. The research suggests we may end up happier together as well. The closest spouses mimic each other's expressions and so grow to look even more alike. Karen Wu, Ph.D., is an assistant professor of psychology at California State University in Los Angeles. The article, Psychology Today, 2022, June of 2022. Why so many couples look alike? It's more than a meme. Many romantic partners really could pass for siblings, and plenty more couples grow to look increasingly alike over time. The reasons why illuminate what people actually look for in a mate. So, usually when you get to this kind of a point where you're talking about looking alike uh, or becoming more alike as we partner with others, obviously there's a lot of self going on in that. And it's not only 
literally, in some practical, factual, pragmatic sort of dimension, what we look like, although it is, it's as much also our perception, even to include, as the article points out, things such as personality, things such more psychologically inclined, such as emotional closeness. Now, whether it is all superficial or as with the more psychological elements of personality and emotion, it does seem to be more about self. <laughs> it is even somewhat else. Now, after I got my hair cut, styled, fixed, whatever you want to call it, yes, I didn't like me so much and at the same time, I sort of had some of those same sentiments directed to the person who typically or normally cuts my hair, though they had never done anything up to that point, had never done anything to cause me any distress or any sort of ill will or feelings that were aimed toward or directed toward them, but it generalized. And maybe to some extent, that's why it tends to be so dramatic, that moment when they finally put the clippers or the shears down, the comb down, the brush down, the, the dryer down, whatever it is, and kind of step back and wheel you around so you can see it in the mirror. And then hopefully if it's immediately something that you think looks good or engenders some sense of, I don't know, self-love even... I love it. You're going to feel really good about them, and maybe in that way you're going to tip them more. I don't know. Uh, at the same time, it's probably not good for their business if you should do that, and instead of self-love, it's like self-hate. And I don't want to trivialize mating, as the uh, article describes it, Psychology Today termed it, or dating, or partnering, or coupling, or whatever. But it's got some of the same dimensions. Maybe it is egotism. <laughs> Maybe it's just you find people who are a lot like you and you're enamored with it. <laughs> Maybe it's just familiarity. You find people who are a lot like you and it's easier. It's easier to process it. It's easier to get along with them. After all, hopefully... You're not only somewhat familiar with you, but you're familiar with what created you, what you grew up with, what you've been socialized to, what your parents were like, what your siblings are like, what your community or culture is like. All of that familiarity. It's not radically different. It's not it's pull back from the chair or the mirror and be spun around and have that person who did your hair. <laughs> you know, that, that while you were sitting in the chair and you didn't get really a chance to look at it, all of a sudden shows you, here you are, your new self. <laughs> Love it, hopefully, or hate it. Uh, but it's not familiar. And it may take a while, I can attest to that. Not only was it an uncomfortable thought thinking others might be looking at me in strange ways or maybe sentiments or ways and judgments similar to what I was thinking about myself, but every time I looked into a mirror, I was painfully made aware, this isn't me. Who 
is this person? It took a little bit of work to get past such the radical change, which may have been somewhat obsessional at some point or become somewhat obsessional at some point. But nonetheless, I look in the mirror and I'm used to who, usually who I see looking back at me. This was not a familiar person. Radically changed. Maybe it is commonality, even in aspirational terms, possibly. Good looking people tend to want to be with other good looking people. Maybe in that same sort of way, it is kind of egotistical or at least an expression of what they believe in more object relations, sort of terms, superficial terms, what they believe they look like. And they go out and find people who in some sort of self-defined judgment way, looks just as good as they do. (laughs) Again, um, who knows? Other than to say it's probably not as deep as more psychological or emotional concerns might be, personality. Uh, But you've got to figure out what attracts and what repels. And again, changing your looks. Isn't that what that's all about in some ways? Looking better. Uh, Wanting, again, the feedback from others. Hopefully it'll be good. Uh, It may also be, as the article suggested, based upon some sort of notion of imprinting. And by the way, imprinting is sort of a legacy of at least the terminology of uh, a researcher by the name of Conrad Lorenz, who did a good bit of his research in the early 60s, 50s, 60s, I believe it was, Uh, But he did it mostly by studying animals. And uh, in particular, he was interested in how animals emotionally bond. Interesting notion being, do they have really conscious awareness? Which then takes us back to this notion of self. And whether it is even something that animals have, some sense of self. uh, Put an animal, a dog in front of a mirror and I'm... Pretty sure most of us believe animal, dog, whatever, uh, other than a human, is probably not going to, as much as we would believe humans, appreciate self. Or maybe the more the animal is like humans, (laughs) then maybe, as with primates, maybe there's some of that. But the further you move away from that... There's no sense of self. Lorenz said it was just basically imprinting, that it was kind of like just that. You're tattooed into your um, brain or in, in terms of whatever the memory or whatever the perceptual capability of animals. Nobody knows that exactly either, since they really don't have that common dimension of language, at least not to the extent of sophistication of human language or potential. We can't really explain it. We can't really ask them about that. But presuming that certain animals, (laughs) he studied goslings, geese, it doesn't even mean that there has to be a goose there, (laughs) a maternal figure, Uh, anything that was there at a critical moment in their life could become representative of their mother. And it was just that physiological, it was just that programmed into them, uh, biologically driven, uh, that it didn't really even require the fact that the object could be inanimate, 
<laughs> or not even alive. Could be, and I think most of what he did study wise, or at least the parts that I remember, thought so interesting as to recall. Remember, he used a broom. <laughs> the broom became their mother. Or he could become their mother. Um, simply because he was there when they hatched. It could also, though, be more sophisticated, premised upon emotional dimensions, uh, closeness, which suggests some psychological aspect beyond the more obvious object relations kind of considerations. Uh, they're close, they're intimate, we know that feeling, we're able to kind of find that in some sort of tangible, they were in reciprocity, reciprocal dimension even, or aspect. Return that which we gave, or even if it wasn't reciprocal, it was maybe in the same sort of way that we discussed about the more superficial. It was familiar, uh, intimate, closeness. Uh, trust could be established or based because it was predictable, it was consistent, it was secure, it was safe, it was what we also call psychologically attachment, secure attachment. And when we discover that in other individuals and we recognize that in other individuals, that element or aspect of closeness can be the basis of that attraction. Again, it comes back to self and what we know, and hopefully then as that other person, the partner, the mate, could demonstrate that, then they must be like me. <laughs> Again, they're a lot like me, but it starts with self. And they remind me of me, or what I have learned, or what I've been conditioned to. The article also speaks to the dimension, as I've already mentioned, of personality. And whether it's inferred, implied, whether we project it. I uh, think certain people look like us, or maybe we discover it. Personality is one of those, also those dimensions. If they're like us, and presuming that we feel good about that... Uh, then they're going to be more naturally, we're going to be more naturally inclined, they're going to be more naturally inclined to be a better fit for us. And there's probably something to be said in an adaptive sort of way, evolutionarily, some benefit to doing that well. <laughs> you know, there may not be as many options, limited options, uh, and in a more natural sort of context, even as humans have animal dimensions, uh, maybe you just didn't get much diversity, choice. Maybe if given more choice, more time, you know, maybe like the goslings for different reasons, with consciousness intact, awareness, self-concept, self-image intact, Maybe we could grow to like or love just about anybody. I don't, I don't know. The same end result, different mechanisms, different ways to get there. But having said all of that, really what I'm trying to chase down is it may be as much about learning to love yourself or finding others who, as you have learned to love yourself, as it may be then desiring diversity, Creativity playing into it. Uh, uniqueness, individuality, 
differences celebrated as opposed to sameness or similarity. And I would certainly not question any of that. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with diversity. There's nothing wrong with different personalities. There's nothing wrong with differences in appearance. There's nothing wrong with being different in terms of looks. Uh, Nothing at all. We're just suggesting, or at least the article seems to be, and I am inclined to agree with it, that until you learn to love yourself or feel good about yourself, and then that probably extends to at least a significant other, whether it is initially family members, as with family constellation, mother, father, uh, brother, sister, siblings, extended family, and or then continuance of that when you go out and you pick a partner, you've learned it. Hopefully you're starting to feel pretty secure in it. Likewise, hopefully it's pretty adaptive. It doesn't have a lot of dysfunction or disorder attached to it. It doesn't result in bad consequences, bad outcomes. And again, the most evolutionary of terms, it is survival of the fittest. And that's a a good fit. That's a good match. But it may also be there's a timing dimension to that. If all of that would represent either early stages or up through the establishment of self, and with that competency, a sense of efficacy, mastery of at least the most essential dimensions or aspects of existence, uh, taking care of all those things that go into love, both the physical as well as emotional needs, uh, being able to cooperate. I mentioned reciprocity earlier, being able to have relationships with people. They help you and you help them. That's all adaptives and beneficial. Maybe it's only when you get there, though, that you're really able to, then in the right sort of way, learn to love other people. I want to take a moment remind you that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So if it is about self-love, it's about getting there. It may also then be about getting there not only the right way, certainly learning to love yourself, maybe confirming that or affirming that or validating that by finding others outside your immediate family even so that would affirm or validate your worth, your value, uh, be able to do that in such a way that there's even the two of you coming together in some sort of manner or fashion or whatever the constellation looks like. Uh, that could be very affirming. We, we get a lot done together. We work well together. We really fit like hand in glove, as he used to say, together. This is a good match. There's some synergistic component to this. Uh, we really are creative when we're together. We uh, are able to accomplish a lot. We're even more self-actualized <laughs> together than we would be individually because we have that additional dimension of somebody who isn't you (laughs) and not of your immediate family in that genetic sort of sense 
uh, or even more sociologically so, the family constellation again, telling you you're good. It's a stranger, but it's somebody who really isn't all that strange. Somebody who really is a lot like you. Maybe it's another level of, again, love, security, attachment, uh, good self-esteem, Maybe, again, that generalizes, hopefully it does, to community and culture. and, and uh, <laughs> It's all a big love fest. We're all getting along. But there's no better way to test <laughs> at least the notion of what this is really about except to then start to add people who are really different. We're all human, so there's some universal aspect to that. So they can't be totally different. But there's, again, a lot of diversity, a lot of different personality types, a lot of different ways individuals, though genetically they may be quite similar, maybe even to the extent that personality might have a genetic component, maybe coming from completely different families. (laughs) They may have some of the same predispositions. They may have some of the same aptitudes uh, implicit inherently there, but they're growing up. In their growing up, their social, and with that some literally material sort of aspect has brought about additional stress. Uh, Maybe it's facilitative even with the stress. Maybe it's other aspects, differences, unique sort of social uh, dynamics that renders them different in some sort of significant manner or way. But it may be only when we get to that point of truly feeling comfortable and solid and uh, accepting and loving ourselves and then have the support of a group of individuals around us who loves us. Maybe it's again in that love fest sort of way we affirm one another. But that may be the best situation then to put someone in and in terms of trying to then love others who might be more or less or less or more radically maybe different. I was the same person after the haircut, but it didn't seem that way to me. And it took me a bit of time to sort out all of that. Self-perception, self-awareness, how it fit into my personality, what other people were going to think about me, what other people, how they reacted to me. I was talking about strangers leaving the salon, I guess, or barbershop, whatever you want to call it, and uh, going out on the street. Uh, Probably they didn't care. Maybe they did. It looked kind of bad. I mean, at least I still think it was cringeworthy. But certainly my family had to get used to that. And uh, though it seemed like it took a long time, I'm sure it wasn't. Nonetheless, we made that adjustment, and my hair's growing out every day. And so I'm getting back to the me <laughs> what they think of me and what I think about myself there's comfort security in that it's part of just the evolutionary adaptive aspect of familiarity as it would translate again security uh, I have routines uh, I have people who say hi to me in the same way every day I get up at the same time I go to bed relatively speaking at the same time 
I have different things to eat during the day, but for the most part, they're all kind of the same. We're creatures of habit. There is an advantage to that. It stabilizes not only us, but as it impacts the social and more physical environment around us. Habitat. <laughs> it, it all is, again, beneficial if we are talking about less conflicts, less potential for such radical change that it makes us feel like we don't know who we are. We get insecure. We start to fall apart. We have to make adjustments. Maybe it's traumatizing. I don't want it to sound like it was overly traumatizing, but you know, anybody's got their hair cut. You could probably, and it was like really, really different. It can be a bit traumatizing. Not life or death, but a lot of things in life, though, have some dimension when there's a radical change. Uh, certainly not something that we always ask for. Maybe it's not as big or as difficult as it may seem, but maybe, again, through our own personality, through some social dimension, it starts to take on the implication. But it can have an element of loss, certainly, and then with that, trauma. What that means is, though, we do better accepting new things, even ourselves, under new circumstances, contingencies, even to the changing of our personality, modification, even as it might be then good, adaptive, growth, maturing. Uh, again, this idea of creativity and enhancement and something new and something different and, and, and it's exciting in a positive sort of way. It's better if we have at least security while we do that. If we have a lot of self-esteem, self-love, if we have a good support system when we do that. So as much as it may seem like it's all selfish, as much as it may seem like in that sort of dimension of time, what's appropriate, early part of life, it's all good, establishing your life, it's all good. Usually it's at that point, though, when we've got those kind of things secured, that we can afford to be a bit more creative. Maybe it's not that there isn't a good bit of risk-taking in adolescence and childhood, uh, again, some of it chosen, some of it not so, some of it reactively so, some of it considerately so. I'm not wanting to say that it's without risk, but from the standpoint of what we choose to do in a growth-oriented sort of way, and as probably when we do talk about dating or mating, hopefully it's with some considered choice. If you see it within a monogamous sort of frame of reference, uh, there's something to be said for endurance, long-term relationships, some element of maturing and growth, uh, again, actualization that can only come over a long-term relationship, which I do believe is true, uh, then too short of a relationship. We're going at it without such thought. <laughs> Strategy, maybe? Awareness might put you at risk of never really having a chance to attain in, especially if that would then be seen as more higher ordered or would include then some thought of wisdom. You want to sustain it. And I think there's always an imperative versus always wisdom in this notion that you don't want to do anything. If you've got a loving relationship, they're hard to come by in the first place. 
So why would you want to take a risk at that? Don't stay in relationships that aren't loving, and it doesn't mean you can't love others. But don't sacrifice any loving relationship or anyone who would have positive intent or regard, unconditional positive intention or regard when it might be directed towards you, who wants to see you succeed. Don't burn those bridges. (laughs) You may want to go back over them on occasions. And I don't know that you can really do in a mature sort of way relationships until you mature. (laughs) And again, time doesn't do it, but time allows it to be done. It's chronological. Everything developmental is done within some aspect of appreciation for chronological age, but also maturity as with emotional or psychological age, but it's still age-related. It's still within time. But instead of looking at this as, oh, I just want to hang out with people who are like me, and that's going to be it, and I really don't have any interest in continuing the growth, or we're going to just get so far, and then we're going to sort of say, well, that's enough. We don't want to take on any more risks or challenges than necessary. We've finally arrived. Let's just hang out here until it's time to buy either some factor outside of your control, imposed, external, locus of control, something imposed. We've got to do it differently. Hopefully you can embrace it as part of an ongoing life strategy. Grow, mature, develop, enjoy the creative. And so that life doesn't become boring and or you become burnt out, creativity is refreshing. It's exciting. Again, it adds extra enhancement dimensions to life as long as we don't put ourselves in too risky of a situation where it gets back to that notion of trauma. But maybe the imperative then is more so understanding to be okay with yourself. To love yourself is a requiem to loving, at least in terms of this concept of a mate or a partner, a significant other, which would then be subsequent, as with maybe those are two milestones, maybe they're in some progressive dimension, your family loves you first, you feel secure and attached there, you become your own person, you never compromise or lose those, those loving relationships, that security of attachment, but you expand it to a significant other who validates that and allows you to establish then in long-term context this sort of adaptive aspect of of relationships. It, It stabilizes you. It stabilizes your environment. It's all part of building culture, community, character and virtue even, personality. Hopefully by the time you meet the significant other, you've got enough of a sense of self and you've matured enough to have some idea of how compatible you are in this personality dimension we've spoken of today on the podcast. But if you don't find compatibility sufficient to at least be able to feel confident moving forward some mastery, or if it's outright potentially so different, so radical, you're really not able to make that, I guess, adjustment 
and it becomes a, a challenge or a fight for who's going to win, them or you, and it becomes so hostile you can't live with them, and in that then it compromises what could have begun as hopefully some dimension of positive affirming attraction now turns into disdain and hatred, which again, a lot of relationships along the lines of what we're discussing today end up there. Maybe we need to be mature enough to know, at least in some head sort of way, no, we've got to learn to love ourselves first, then we can maybe find one or two others, significant others, partner, spouse, can be friends as well, before we ever take on the bigger challenges of people who are different from us. That doesn't mean that, again, we should settle for the lesser. We don't want to be arrested in our development or fixated. We want to love others. Maybe that's why most of that type of generative orientation within the context of social maturity occurs later on in life because we need all of this as stability to be able to do that. But at the same time, though, don't rush out and expect really radically different people who come from really radically different places, though you may be interested, though you may be attracted to them or some part of them. Don't rush out there and do that prematurely and certainly before you learn to be okay with yourself. Maybe it's not familiarity or just somebody else to tell us we're okay. Another way of saying that. Maybe it's we need to be okay with ourselves before we're really able to take the additional steps, invest the additional emotional, psychologically, and sometimes again, literally so, physical energy to add to that radically different others, different perspectives, different worldviews, different ways of doing things which do require a bit of self-soothing or calming. When I I left the barbershop, the salon, I did a lot of self-talk. It'll be okay. You can get through this. I could have freaked out walking out of there and did to some extent, but it wasn't, again, over-the-top awful. But the conclusion would be this. Those okay with self are less threatened and defensive with others, particularly if those others are radically different than them. It doesn't mean that they can't learn to love them. It doesn't mean that, again, in time, there can even be a familiarity. It's an acquired, they used to call it acquired taste, but it's acquired. Uh, Maybe it's just, again, infinitely so possible, the combination of all the factors that go into life, self, others, environment, natural environment, biological environment, all that adjusting means that it's a constant process of something potentially new and therein something potentially lost and therein something potentially threatening and therein, if too threatening, something that could be potentially perceived as traumatic or maybe legitimately it is life or death trauma. But if you're going to adjust to something like that, it's going to require you to love yourself, know yourself, be familiar enough with yourself so as to, in some sort of risk-taking dimension, 
Go out and engage something different. Do something different. Be with different people. Experience different cultures. And you can't, again, you can impose it, but you've got to be careful because if you force such radical change in such imminent or immediate terms that people don't have a chance to either wrap their head around it or get used to, within time, develop, acquire. Maybe they also, for whatever reasons, have not been able to or they're a little bit remit in self-concept, self-esteem. Maybe it's age-related. Maybe it's got something, again, to do with lack of resources or poverty. Whatever it is, if we're going to go around asking people to radically change or if you're going to ask yourself to embrace such a different sort of culture with a lot of individuals who make up that culture representing or reflecting likewise differences, be prepared. No, it's not going to be easy and always remember who you are. It doesn't mean you can't give yourself away. It doesn't mean you can't adopt something different. It doesn't mean that you'll go without any risk or that the risk won't include, again, as with risk, loss. But it doesn't have to be so traumatizing. When individuals come talk to me about relationship issues, they've either never come to an awareness such as the paradigm or the model, the way of looking at it I'm offering today on the podcast, or if they have, they've forgotten it, or they just think it's going to be automatic, or they think it's just selfishness or stubbornness that people don't want to change, or they don't like it because if they change, then maybe somebody will get the best of them, or they'll have to forfeit something that otherwise gives them the best over somebody else. I don't think it always has to come to that. And even if it should include dimensions of that, it's just probably the idea that personality, self, self-awareness, coming to a place of loving yourself, being familiar, secure, being securely attached, it's all adaptive. But if we do kind of then extend that to the place where we even exit a material sort of dimension, who knows what is after material life, you know, the the aspects of what we in consciousness are aware of, what we are bound by our human dimension, bound to maybe in some experiential, empirical way, even study or discern. If you're scared to death of it, though, it's going to cause you to get defensive and maybe get a trauma reaction and be afraid. And maybe the older you get, the further along you go. If you really never had either somebody tell you what we're talking about today on the podcast and kind of help to try to present it in a positive light, if you're not seeing it adaptively, but instead seeing it as a demand or in that, again, get to the place or once more get the place of some perceived threat and a trauma reaction associated, it's not going to go well. That's what I do for a living. I only help couples because they fall into that trap at times of either never having learned this, thought it would be so easy, uh, maybe in some ways forgotten this, maybe in their passion to make a commitment and not give up, they've ended up 
exposing themselves to further and further struggle to the point of almost destroying one another and then whatever the union that might represent of the two of them being uh, functioning as one together, uh, that's death too. (laughs) It's got a personal dimension to it. And then you've got all the family and friends that have to kind of go through it with you. But even on an individual basis, If you're not solid in who you are and you don't know who you are and you're not in love or you've not rightly come to a love, not narcissistically, not in that selfish sort of way, not in some sort of pretend sort of dimension, being spoiled, demanding everybody make it about you, that's not really maturity, that's still childish. If you never move beyond those early childhood stages to the place where you're really confident where you've really had the supports, where you've been able to find, when you needed it the most, the affirmation from others, and then also learn to self-soothe and self-affirm, as identified previously in the the conversation today, you need help. (laughs) Some of that is what I do, but I never lose the overall template of where this is heading. It's about not just indulging you as selfish because nobody else is going to say this stuff to you. So you've got to go find somebody to say it to you. It really is about then strengthening you so that you can go back out in the world and learn, grow, continue to mature, continue to psychologically develop, cognitively develop, emotionally develop. And if you should have been in some sort of a situation that's caused you to regress, to reclaim and regain the ground that maybe you feel like you've lost. But it's not even to end there. It's to continue to grow, continue to meet others, continue to expand your experiences, continue to learn how to love other people, even those who are, again, radically different. Haircuts are haircuts. (laughs) But at the same time, it's the same sort of reaction. You look in the mirror and you may not recognize yourself one day. But you're still there. It's still you. You just have to remind yourself or reclaim it, reestablish it so that you can then begin to move on and continue to grow. That's not bad. That's not evil. That's not being prejudiced That's not being biased if it's all directed, and that's my job too, toward further growth, to keep directing you in the most adaptive, empirically established, researched established. All of these theories of development and developmental milestones, they've been researched and studied. So I'm not just giving a personal opinion as to what I think you should be or where you should end up or what you should do. I try to, again, base that on what I know is the best, not only in terms of self-actualization that you could accomplish with aptitude in mind, achievement to follow, but all peoples, all cultures, all communities, all civilizations on a global level... And I think we could all benefit from that now and then. So, if you want to really understand why so many couples look alike, and maybe with that, there's all these 
factors the article spoke of that I read to you earlier from Psychology Today, June of 2022, by Karen Wu, Ph.D., it may be there's something developmental about that. And with that, it may also be that there's something evolutionarily adaptive, whether we do that individually or in context of others. But in the end, love is good. <laughs> so don't hate on anybody. I appreciate you listening, participating by being an active listener with the podcast. Uh, what is it? It's Word with Dave Clay. And, and again, we do this so as to inform, to maybe share a different perspective, to encourage. Come to see someone like me, fantastic. Reach out to me. I always put the email address. I'm open for comments, commentary. Love to get the feedback. Uh, but if not me, then somebody, if you should need the additional assistance. And also with that, if you come back, we're just going to keep doing what we do. We'll keep adding to what you know, encouraging you in the best ways that we know how, not knowing you individually, but more generically, uh, contributing, giving back, giving to the broader culture, society, to make this a better place for all of us. So between now and the next podcast, I want to wish you not only good health, but good mental health and specific to today's podcast, the best of relationships and love that you might be able to have, be able to claim and find. But don't forget, you don't want to lose them. It's the foundation for everything. How we get along with self, how we get along with others. So until our next podcast, again, appreciate you joining me today. Good health and good mental health.